0: where where the hero is is driving really fast. He's after some goal on the other side of town, or he knows where he needs to get. And all of a sudden, the clues click into place. And he knows that actually he needed to be back where he was coming from. So what does he do? He throws the handbrake, and he flips the wheel, and he spins the whole car around to run off the other direction. And Micah, in chapter 4, has reached that juncture where he pulls the handbrake and speeds the other way. So, Micah chapter one to three that we've considered is that book of doom. Each chapter heightened as each successive chapter heightened or, or at least specified. It got more, uh, specific in its destination, the, the place against which destruction was predicted, culminating in the announcement of doom even for Jerusalem itself. And Jeremiah, though, 26, verses 16 to 19, revealed for us that Micah's prophecies had had their proper effect and brought Hezekiah to repent and improve Israelite life with God. But that only delayed the inevitable as... Jerusalem still eventually fell because of their godlessness. In contrast, we've now reached Micah four and five, the book of visions. If, if the book of doom has the best title, the book of visions has some of the coolest content. I'm enthused to quote my senior minister. Uh, about these chapters, these this section, this book of visions, announces future hope for god 's people. So Micah pulled that handbrake and reverse direction from his persistent indictment against a sinful people, and we considered in past weeks how the prophets, if you remember, were covenant lawyers who prosecuted God's people for their violations of the national covenant that God made with them at Sinai. Micah labored during the events recorded for us in 2nd Kings 15 to 20 to deliver God's word to a rebellious people. He worked at the at the same time it's needed to be noted here in our text as the more well-known prophet Isaiah which becomes really relevant for us as as we think more about this text. But in addition to his role as the prosecuting lawyer, he also kept Israel aware of how God would fulfill his redeeming promises for them. And in this section of of Micah, as we come to chapter 4, he looked beyond the scope of impending doom to the day of deliverance. God revealed this message in chapter 4 about the latter days of redemptive history when God's temple would be filled with people from all nations. There would be abundant peace, and the Lord would be king over his people. So the main point tonight is that God's promises for the future should instill present hope. God's promises for the future should instill present hope. Well, think about that in three points. The future blessings, the familiar burdens, and the final battle. So first, the future blessings. So, okay, in this point, I want to say, I, I think it's really helpful when we come to these sections of prophecy. The, the best way I can make sense of it is when we get an outline, when I get an outline. And so I want to try to map that for you here and uh, for this chapter and then establish Micah's point from the text before we move on to apply that point in the successive sermon points. So th- there are two major sections of this chapter, and each one has two subsections. The first major section is verses one to eight, which speaks from a, a future perspective as we see in the opening words of verse one. It shall come to pass in the latter days, throwing us into the future, right? Micah noted this future period again in the second subsection, this first part, in verse 6, in that day, which sets verses 6 to 8, the second subsection, in that same latter day period as he discusses in verses 1 to 5. And then that little bitty word now begins both subsections in, in the chapter's second major half both in verses 9 and 11. So so whereas Micah spoke of the future in verses 1 to 8, in verses 9 to 13, he applied that future reality to his contemporary scene. And so let us consider first Micah 4, 1 to 5. So come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths Four. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they war, learn war anymore, but they shall sit Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we walk, will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That phrase... That, that opens that section, the latter days. It, it builds on Micah one to three, that book of doom. The, the immediate future for, for these people hearing Micah proclaim this message was doom. But the latter days are full of deliverance. After God punishes His people for their disobedience by by sending them into exile, He will rescue them. Further, God will not only restore Israelites to the place of true worship, but He will also stream the nations to worship the one true God. It will be a time of, of unprecedented peace. Wherein no one needs weapons... But can make them into farming tools it 's not for fighting or but for food now interesting i think it 's interesting to me uh, isaiah two one to four i I bet you you caught some of this you you may, maybe you thought I was r- repeating the same text, even but isaiah two one to four is identical in all ways that matter for, for us here tonight, uh, aside from really technical considerations that, that some people love to dwell on, but we won't. It's identical to verses one to three of Micah four. Now, of course, uh, scholars are confused by these identical passages. S- some say Isaiah borrowed from, from Micah's prophecy, and others say Micah borrowed from Isaiah's prophecy. Some say that both based their individual prophetic texts on a pre-existing text. Now, I, I don't know that. It, it, well, at least the first two. I don't know that either of those are problematic in themselves per se. Scripture often quotes other scripture. That's fine. But, we don't really have evidence for that. We don't, we don't really know that Micah and Isaiah interacted. And so I take this, you know, bizarre little view, uninformed as it may be, that, that God inspired both of these texts identically. Because He desired both prophets to, to speak the same message that their hearers needed. Both prophets in both of these texts establish a hope-filled vision of the day of the Lord. The latter days when God would close the timeline of history and work decisively for his people. Micah hasn't forgotten, though, that he foretold doom. That will take the form of exile. Whereas verses one to five tell that there will be a glorious future for Jerusalem. Verses six to eight tell how God will accomplish that future, bring about that promise. Even though these people will be driven into exile, God Will gather them back, he will create a remnant from the exiles, place them in the kingdom, and reign over them forever as their king and so, so then that brings us now to the the second half of mike four which which switches focus from a focus on the future deliverance to present application of that future deliverance promise God made so so this helps us think about what do we do when God makes a promise and we'll consider that more practically in a bit but read verses 9 and 10 with me now now why do you cry aloud is there no king in you has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. of questions i think can be confusing especially if we we always have to put these things in their context right so that we know what's actually being asked and especially that can be confusing if we forget everything micah has previously said in this chapter so so we could paraphrase the lead up to verse 9 and and then into verse 9 something like this god has promised astounding blessing for the future now why do you cry aloud it's, it's the now frames itself in light of that promised future blessing the point is that god's promises for the future should override the distress of the present god's people have a king there is a counselor Isaiah 9, 6 says a wonderful counselor. The time of destruction is the time to remember God's coming rescue, verse 10. Micah, I mean, so verses 11 to 13 there, Micah essentially repeated the point. The, the nations will be gathered, are gathered in this, in his time frame, are gathered against Jerusalem with every wicked plan to destroy it. But they don't know that God has plans to destroy them in return. Jerusalem will go into exile in Babylon, verse 10, but the future blessings, the future blessings are that one day God will make His people the most powerful people, that will turn the whole earth into their land, and that should inspire present hope. And that brings us to our second point: the familiar burdens. So thus far, we've thought about how Micah first spoke in the future pers- from the future perspective about great future blessings and then switch to his own times perspective to to announce <clears throat> that those future blessings should cause his hearers to have great hope despite coming difficulty. And now that we have a handle on how Micah made this point in this text, that future promises should instill present hope, we need to apply it, which is the same Structure as this chapter, by the way, point and application, so I, I remember my the end of my first term in, in university, and my family was going to go to the beach and It was though the same week that i 'm taking my first final exams, right, finishing those up and obviously, since this is my first university experience, exams felt like they were really trying, and I had no idea I'd actually make it through. How could I, right? No one else in history has passed their first-term exams. There was this hope, though, set out in front of me that if I made it through these exams, I would, I would get a few days away. But during those tests, however, it, it was difficult to see that I'd persevere through this experience to Obtain that hope and the, the, the tension between anticipation and, and anguish intensify the difficulty to focus both on the future hope by being extract, distracted by these exams and on, co- distract from completing the trial by so badly wanting to jump ahead to the holiday. And the point is that in, in practical life, it's really difficult to balance endurance with expectation. Now that's obviously a trivial, laughable example, but it gets, unless you're in your first term of university, but it gets us to the point. First term university exams are hardly ever Sometimes they might be, but hardly ever life-changing events. But, but we know that this tension between endurance and expectation is a principle that, that transfers and transposes across many experiences in all our lives. We can think most pointedly about it when we actually do look at God's promises and try to find comfort in them in the midst of our worldly struggles. So, the thing we, that we may consider in this point, that we need to consider in this point, is the way that we have a tendency not to find our hope in the promises of God. We doubt, here's the thing, we, we have a real default setting to doubt that God's promises are relevant for us. I, I had heard that word, relevant, um, and you, you'll probably learn what I think of it in the years to come. Uh, perhaps a fraction of of how many times I had heard it after I began working with youth. It's relevant is is the buzzword of ministry. Aimed at young people. And, and there's some importance to that. I, I get that. You, you know, it's, it's probably not most ideal to start teaching gospel stewardship in your retirement years to teenagers. You can, you can put that off for a So I get that there's some need to think about relevance. We, but it's also abused. Because I I heard a few of the young people with with whom I worked say things like, Sunday church services aren't relevant to their life. They would like it. They would want to be there if church was just relevant to their lives. They, They did not think that the message they heard was one that applied to what they did in everyday life. Now, on the other hand, sitting in front of a television, playing video games, somehow was incredibly relevant. And I think what that shows us, though, isn't it that they, at least, had, these these few, had misunderstood what relevant means. They they thought relevant was about what they want. We need to know that relevant is about what we need. It was, cause think about this text before us, right? It would likely not seem relevant to Micah's hearers that many years down the road that God would free them. They wanted, the, the thing that they considered relevant was God won't send you into exile at all. There should be little doubt that the promises of future rescue were seen to be irrelevant by some who faced immediate destruction. And so let me ask you, how relevant do you think God's promises in your life are? We have, even in Micah 4, as we'll see in the next point, the promises about Christ set before us. But how seriously do you take those promises? Likely, very few of you are worried about an enemy army destroying london as that is not a current threat but how many of you are struggling in your marriage how many of you can't figure out how to relate well to your spouse How many of you lie to or manipulate your husband or wife for your own benefit? How many of you are wrestling with the best way to bring up your children in the Lord? And your attention is latched on to that struggle of how best To do that. How many of you on the other hand struggle with singleness? Thought about this with family. What about those of you who are single? Do you worry about the future of your life and contentment if you will find fulfillment and companionship? For our young people, is it a struggle to see not just that you have to, but that you should, and the reasons why you should obey your parents? Or why school is important for you to do? Or or why you need to be responsible to grow in faith? And what I hope... The point made there is that in all stages of life it can be easy to lose sight of how god's promises for the future made to us in christ can apply to us in these daily struggles but micah's point makes this clear for us doesn't it that they do we see that God's promises for the future are supposed to instill present hope and that is not a disconnected hope but one that helps us endure and succeed with perseverance in all of our present trials the the present trial is not the end of the story even when it feels like it might be. But we can only reach the promised blessing as by passing through the present trial. The, the familiar burdens are that we, like the Israelites, lose sight of how relevant God's promises are for our present plight. That brings us to our last point. The final battle. We, we saw that Micah communicated God's promises for future blessing, which were intended to instill present hope. We also considered how often we struggled to stay fixed on the relevance of God's promises for our lives. Now, however, we need to see how these promises to ancient Israel lead to and even include those promises we still receive about our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, okay, there's this bit of lingering difficulty. I'm always hesitant to say problem when I'm talking about Scripture. Because it's not a problem, it's just we've got to work something out in this text. In that God promised... Total restoration from exile. And that all nations would fall under Israelite rule and would flock to the temple to worship the true God. So maybe you already see the tension forming there. Although God did bring Judah back from exile in Babylon, as this, explicitly in, this text explicitly indicates would happen there are bits of it that sort of seem like God never brought it to completion. The, the later glory of Jerusalem paled in comparison to the kingship under David and Solomon's temple. Even with rebuilding efforts under Nehemiah all was a dim reflection of of what it used to be. And the nations did not come to worship the true God there, but rather Persia, Greece, and Rome all at various times maintained a firm hold over the broader region so that the sense of exile always lingered over the promised land. Reverend Pearson recently talked to us about this feature of prophetic perspective, right? He, he used the illustration of, of the mountain range. I'm not going to steal it. I've got a, a different one. I won't swipe that. Uh, it's, mine is perhaps not as full of splendor. It's like when you order chicken and, and you get your plate arrives and it looks like just one thick fillet. And then you lift it up, and you find there 's two or three, yeah, you can see where I sort of find my joy <laughs> what What Micah saw as one event is actually fulfilled in multiple phases, so like it appears there 's one piece of chicken there 's many. Micah saw the return from exile and the defeat and conversion of the nations as as one event from his perspective from far away we experience it however upon closer inspection as ongoing rolling fulfillment because don't we see don't you see it already don't you that that we see this prophecy coming true as we speak You've gotten a sense of that, I imagine. People are not going to the physical temple mount in Jerusalem, but to God's true temple now, His church. Paul asked us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? and God's spirit dwells in you the the temple the place of God's indwelling presence is now where God's people are J- Jesus himself told us this became the case with his coming in John 4:23 to 24 specifically In addressing the issue of the need to worship in Jerusalem, that's what the Samaritan woman asked him. You say we need to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and it's now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Christ has triumphed over the nations at the cross. As Paul wrote in Colossians 2, He has become the enthroned King over His people. As Micah 4, eight foretold would happen, God would reign over His people. And he is defeating the nations in a surprising way. He is not destroying them. God's people, as God's people, do not need our swords to fight enemies, but ours to feed our neighbors. Second Corinthians 10, three to six. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The final battle is not for political reign, but to see lost people come to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you yourselves are the fulfillment of Micah 4. You are the gathering of the nations to God's temple. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are the evidence of God completing His foretold work. We we too look forward to the total fulfillment of this prophecy when we will see total peace on earth. We will see that because Christ will return to deliver us from every plight of this age. God's Son gave His life in human nature on the cross to remove our sins. He walked this earth to earn entitlement to heaven for those with faith in Him. And He rose from the grave to prove He had finished it. And He stands in heaven now to plead our case. Jesus Christ has ended the curse and has passed into the realm where no curse exists. And yet we here who still live in exile under the curse in this age Await the return of our king. But we know he will return. And as Micah said, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so then we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, there has always been, in every age, there has been a fixation to see prophecy fulfilled. People speculate about it. People try to decode Scripture as if it has been hidden behind veils of unclear language. And yet we read this passage and we delight that we live with all people of the church in every year since the coming of Christ. We live in the day of prophecy fulfilled. We don't have to decode this message. We see it. Our King has come. He rules over. He has subdued His people to Himself. And He reigns over us, defending us conquering all of his and our enemies we give thanks that we have this king who has ridden out victorious from his city and we know we give thanks that the temple city now is us and that christ dwells here with us that you have made your kingdom spread across every inch of this globe and that you use us, who, who seem to feel, at least, to be the least likely soldiers. And yet, you have chosen to spread your kingdom. Claim victory through the simple things we do of trying to speak about Jesus. We ask that just as you inspired Micah to proclaim That future blessing should instill present hope. Give us that focus. That as we think of our glorious King who has earned heaven on our account, that that future blessing would instill present hope. In all of the struggles, the trials, in our family lives, in our work endeavors, in everything that we might undergo... Help us to focus on that insurpassable glory and use that to fill us with joy that we might be filled with love for our Savior and willingness to serve Him. And we pray these things for His sake and in His name. Amen.